Hello, welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. And I'm Jane. How are you, Jane? I'm doing, you know, the 2020 version of fine, I guess. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's a new version of fine. It's 2020 fine. Yeah. (laughs) Which is like, comparatively, I'm okay. I'm surviving. Um, I, I do like your idea of trying to find positive things to say, so... Um, this week I voted on Friday and I was very excited yeah. about that. So that is yay, a nice democracy. yay democracy. Yay yes. democracy. Yeah, my positive thing is it. my positive thing is similar because I did text banking to encourage people to vote and I wrote some letters for vote forward to encourage people to vote. So, oh amazing. I that love was that. That's fun. Yeah. We really got to do whatever we can to just, you know, get people those ballots. Yeah, especially since voter suppression is a real issue. Uh-huh. It's not It's not good. And this year, we more and more people are going to need to vote absentee and, you know, vote by mail and things like that. And that's mm-hmm. such a more difficult process. So helping people to make sure that they're registered and um, know how to get a ballot and where to send it and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and don't forget, you can vote early. You are allowed. Um, That's what I did. So don't think that you have to wait until November 3rd. You can. There are lots of days that you can go, and you can find out that information um, on your voting website. I think if you go to voting.gov, it'll tell you where yeah. to do that. So check that out. Check that out. Um, I forget what you're talking about, but I'm excited to find out. Oh, it'll be, yeah, it'll be a fun surprise. All right. Do so you want to get started? <laughs> Here we go. Mm-hmm. The origins of the haunted house. Oh, right, right, right. To... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Dope, 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 dope. Yeah, yeah, the origins of the haunted house date back to 19th century London with oh. a series of illusions and spooky attractions that are considered sort of the precursors to the haunted house. In 1802, Mary Tussaud, and yes, that is the Madame Tussaud. Yay created the exhibition of wax sculptures of decapitated French figures, including King Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette, and Maximilien Robespierre. Mm-hmm. Her likenesses... Interesting, stand- Robespierre's going to come up for me later. <gasps> Wait, she Whoa. made a wax sculpture of the guy who, who caused the reign of terror? <laughs> it's a big, yes. A big statement there. She made wax figures of pretty much anyone she could like she could you know um okay. anyone that was dead that's her choice um anyone yeah. who's dead <laughs> <laughs> her likenesses scandalized the french people with how eerily accurate they were the reason why she was able to create such accurate figures was because she created death masks of people who were guillotined during the french revolution oh that creepy that's really creepy yeah. I mean, death masks were a much more of a common, a much more common practice back then, but that is I know, creepy that she like, did it for that reason. And it's such a creepy image to picture her, like, literally watching an execution and the minute the head hits the ground being like, and give me that, here we go, let's just yeah. mold this. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is creepy. And then, yeah. like, using that to then put on a bunch yeah. of plaster. Yeah, that is creepy. Yeah. She had several executioners in her family, and she apprenticed with her mother's employer, who was an anatomist and who also sculpted in wax. In mm-hmm. fact, I, I, when I was reading this, I just kind of was like, okay, Hollywood, I, I have your next movie idea. I don't know what, why there hasn't been, like, an HBO miniseries on Madame Tussauds right. or a <laughs> horror movie. I think this would be such a cool thing to make something about. I agree. Um, yeah. In, in fact, her... Um, her mother's employer was this guy named Philippe Curtius. It could be pronounced courteous. I don't know. I, I don't know what the French pronunciation is. Um, but mm-hmm. she was his housekeeper and he adopted Marie and he took her on as his apprentice at a very young age. And oh. some have speculated that this guy was really her biological father and oh. that he just like adopted her to, um, you know, get rid of some of the scandal from not being married to her mother. Others suspected that her biological father was some unnamed aristocrat who abandoned Marie's mother and that this guy was just being really nice and trying to save them from the scandal of that but he just kind of like took them under his wing interesting uh but Marie worked with him and 
learned both anatomy and wax sculpting from him very quickly at a very young age. And he had his own exhibit of figures, but he mainly built living politicians and he would pose them like figures for showings to make sort of humorous political statements. Like instead uh -huh. of reading the Sunday funnies, you'd go to see what, how this guy had posed his mannequins for the week. Interesting. Yeah. And I will say he didn't, well, I don't know if this is the case for him as well, but she didn't make full bodies at the time. She just mm -hmm. made faces and then put okay. them on. Like, well, yeah, because she had know. a mask for the face. She didn't have a mask for yeah. a full body. That would be even creepier. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, but he taught Marie how to make death masks, which does everybody know what a death mask is? I'm just going to say it. It's a mold of a dead person's face. And when he was called away to serve in the military, she had to do most of the work in their business by herself. Um, in her book, Madame Tussauds and the History of Wax Works, Pamela Pilbeam said that Tussaud sat, quote, on the steps of the exhibition with the bloody heads on her knees, taking the impressions of their features. So literally, like I said earlier, she would go to executions and just, like, grab the head. Um, I know. It's so, like, grotesque and that's really grotesque. macabre. Like, it's yeah. weird. Um, the job required her to be comfortable in any atmosphere, be it a palace or a prison, and she sort of had to have her ear on the ground and follow death wherever she could. Uh, when radical Jean-Paul Marat was murdered in his bathtub by Charlotte Corday, Marie Tussaud got there so fast, got to the scene where he was murdered, that the killer was still being processed by law enforcement as she started to work on his death mask. He was still in the bathtub that he was killed in. Oh. I know. Isn't that so, like, ugh, I don't know. I feel like it made her... I'm sure she had to be, like, so removed from death emotionally. Right. right. She was the original goth. Yeah. yeah, she really was. When she set up a permanent London exhibition, she dubbed her grotesque collection The Chamber of Horrors, which is a name that stuck to the Wax Museum until this day. So the one in London oh. is still called The Chamber of Horrors. I've been to the one and in London. it's such a weird It's thing. very creepy. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's much I've creepier than the one in New York. Yeah, I've been to the New York one. Although, I'm going to be honest, I didn't really enjoy that one either. My friends and I kind of went there last second because we just, like, needed something to do. And the whole time I was like, I don't enjoy this. I but think it's, it's fun. So the one in New York is m much more designed to be, like, fun and, like, LOL, look at the celebrity. And the one in London is, like, yeah. creepy. That's the thing I was going to say is it's such a different vibe going mm -hmm. on because that one's, like, let's look at celebrities. And that one is like when it was originally made and I imagine it like the theme is echoed today, but when it was originally made, it was literally like anyone, you know, that was beheaded or murdered, come look at their face. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like a, it's creepy. Yeah. That is creepy. I agree. At the turn of the 20th century, more macabre attractions began to develop. Um, in Paris, the Grand Guignol Theater put on really gruesome plays in which they would, sta they would stage graphic dismemberment. Ugh. The theater's director, Max Maury, famously boasted that he judged each performance by the number of people who passed out due to shock in each audience. <gasps> I know. It wasn't real dismemberment. It was just... It, Stage. Right, but even even like simulated stage, it's so scary. I know. I read this one really interesting article about an actress who was in his plays and how she was the one who her character was murdered and she was like some newspaper called her like the most murdered woman in oh, Paris or something yeah. and it was like over 3000 times audiences watched her get disemboweled. Oh my god. Yeah. That's crazy. That's so interesting. In 1915, a fairground in Liphook, England, dis uh, debuted one of the first ghost houses, which was an early version of a haunted house. I don't know exactly what makes it different from what would eventually be known as the haunted house, but it was, I guess, slightly different. Um, mm. It is widely agreed upon that around this time, the public appetite for horror was on the rise. They were really looking for creepy attractions. Mm-hmm. The first real Halloween-oriented haunted houses first emerged during the Great Depression. Mm. American parents noticed that around Halloween time, there was an increase in teen pranks that were escalating to property damage, vandalism, and harassment of strangers. Mm. So cities were looking for ways to keep teenagers busy and distracted. Mm. And haunted houses was one big idea they had that really took off. 
those first ones were really primitive and they were mostly run out of family homes. Um, neighbors would coordinate house to house parties where kids would go from one house to the other and explore decorated basements with scary scenes. In 1937, a party pamphlet was published that (laughs) was instructions for parents on how to make your own a uh, haunted house in your basement so <laughs> you can awesome. like give the local kids something to do. Um, I, I I have a quote from one here that I think is so funny because it's so clearly like <laughs> like someone telling dads how to set up their house. Right. Um, okay, here you go. Quote, an outside entrance leads to a rendezvous with ghosts and witches in the cellar <laughs> or attic. hang old fur and strips of raw liver on the walls where one feels his way to the dark steps i know that's so gross that's super weird moans and howls come from dark corners damp sponges and hairnets hung from the ceiling to touch his face um doorways are blockaded so guests must crawl through dark tunnels at the end he hears (laughs) <laughs> a plaintive meow and sees a black cardboard cat outlined in luminous paint <laughs> like you had me at the beginning with the raw liver on the walls but then right. like the cardboard cat <laughs> oh my god that's so funny <laughs> the fact that they want like moans and howls to be coming from dark corners it's 1937 which means that it was just like someone's mom or like neighbor in the corner being like whoa Right. That's so funny. It's oh just, my god. I, I love so this. I love this. My mom absolutely would do that. Like if she was a parent in the 40s during the depression, she'd be like, yep, this is what we're doing. Uh, mark your calendars. <laughs> this is our activity for the weekend. We're gonna get back to the local children. Like she would do We that. gotta give the youth something to do. My mom, this is probably won't be shocking to you, through the most hardcore parties when I was a child. Like, thinking back on it, I cannot remember any other kid's birthday party being, like, like, I couldn't tell you something of interest that we did at the party, you know? It was like, we came over and we all ran around in a yard for three hours, and then we ate some pizza and we went home. Like, my mom went so hard. (laughs) Bouncy houses, she would make up games, she would throw like prizes off of our porch into the yard and then we would have to run around and collect them like just pure chaos <laughs> <laughs> but i bet people today. remember my birthday party oh yeah if you came over my mom would throw stuff off the porch for us great let's do it. just she throws little bottles of wine <laughs> oh <laughs> those little like tequilas that you get in hotel mini bars <laughs> she would do it she would do it I feel like I could get like a big butterfly net and like try and catch them. Oh my god, that'd be hilarious. (laughs) No, we had bags that we had to try to catch them in, which we never did. Mm, It's like hardcore contactless trick or treating. Well, it was like a pinata without having to hit something. (laughs) It's just like, she's like, I'll just throw it at you. Pinatas are too messy. (laughs) Too messy, too messy. Break open a box here. No, (laughs) it's too messy, too messy. That's the one thing about pinatas is the like, it's really fun trying to you know hit the the thing until the candy falls out. But I never liked the like, okay, now we gotta pick them up off the floor aspect of it. And if you're doing it outside, it's always like tangled up in the grass. And like pinatas are fun when there's like five people. When there's like fifteen <laughs> people, it's like it's a madhouse. You're not gonna get any candy. One time, one time, we had a pinata once at my birthday. I'm pretty sure. And, like, I got so little that I just walked up to my mom and I was like, can I just get some out of the bag? And she was like, yeah. Like, she just, like, <laughs> these all top it off. Because it was so insane. It didn't make any sense. Or, like, I would just blindly pick up candy and then I'd end up with, like, a candy I didn't like, like, Whoppers. I'd be like, I want this. And she'd be like, all right, I'll trade you for, like, some Reese's cups. Like, it just was so much easier. Oh, uh, this is making me really want candy. Oh, it's Halloween. Mm. I know, but what's the deal with trick-or-treating this year? Like, some Well, you're not trick-or-treating. You're an adult. No, I was never intending on that. But our, like, I still see candy for sale in stores, which now I don't feel as bad like buying it for myself. I mean, it's cause... possible that, like, like, you know, Halloween's the best when we wear a mask. <laughs> you know, neighborhoods, true. neighborhoods could easily still be doing trick-or-treating, I think. Yeah. 
I saw one hack idea on Facebook that was like setting up a PVC pipe from the top of a porch to the bottom, mm. um, like at a slant so yeah. that trick-or-treaters could just come to the bottom of your steps and you could like slide, slide them down a piece of candy. candy. <laughs> so you'd have like contactless delivery. That's so, so as long funny. as you like wash your hands before you handle the candy, like you're, it's, it's fine. Right. That's <laughs> hilarious. I love that. Like a little candy shoot. It sounded, it seemed like such a smart idea. All right. So this, I think, is the coolest fact I learned. But what made um, haunted houses such a cultural phenomenon was when Walt Disney decided to build one. Oh. Mm-hmm. In 1969, nearly two decades after he got approval to do the project, Disneyland's haunted mansion opened to the public. Mm. It drew inspiration from Evergreen House and the Winchester Mystery House and oh, it yes, quickly became it. a huge success. In a single day shortly after its debut, more than 82,000 people passed through the haunted mansion. Its centerpiece was the Grand Hall, a 90-foot-long ballroom sequence of dancing ghouls at a birthday party. Mm. And what it's really famous for is that it uses optical illusions, refracted light to make, you know, actual looking ghosts and other Mm -hmm. ethereal images. Right. Uh, It was really kind of at the forefront of technology in that industry. Um, Walt Disney became, uh, Walt Disney, because of the Haunted Mansion, is credited with starting the haunted attraction industry. Um, Quote, what made the Haunted Mansion so successful and so influential, however, was not its similarity to haunted houses and dark rides, that is, tawdry carnival haunted houses of the past, mm. but its use of startling new technologies and effects. Ghosts were no longer simply sheets hung on a tree, but were instead actual shimmering, translucent figures that moved, spoke, and sang. A witch wasn't just a rubber-masked figure bent over a fake cauldron, but a completely realistic, bodiless head floating in a crystal ball, conducting Uh a complex seance. Hmm. Very cool. I know. Within a few years after this, big haunted houses spread across the country as a huge phenomenon. Mm -hmm. The U.S. Junior Chamber became famous for using haunted houses as a fundraising event, uh, which was very successful. In California, Knott's Berry Farm began hosting its own Halloween night attractions, which eventually grew into a multi-week schedule of Halloween events. Every year, this guy named Bob Burns attracted national media attention for attractions that he created that recreated classic horror movies in great detail. Cool. I looked at his website. I think he only really did that in the 70s and 80s. He's not still doing it, but it seemed like he got, he, he was really good at it, and it was a really cool thing. That's really um, I would like to do that. Yeah. As horror movies became more common and popular in the film industry, especially in the 80s and 90s, yes. there was a lot of overlap with haunted houses and horror movies. Uh, big haunted houses were used by the film industry for cross-promotional advertisement. Mm-hmm. Um, haunted houses were filled with horror movie characters. There was a lot of overlap between yeah. those two, I, I guess, mediums, if you want to call that. Them makes that makes sense. Like, I, I, there, there are so many um, haunted houses or haunted corn mazes that I've been to that have, like, Leatherface in it. And there's always mm-hmm. somebody who is Freddy, something like that. Like, yeah. they're, like they're always Absolutely. there. Absolutely. I think because we really associate those really popular horror characters as just like, oh, that's a thing I'm scared of. Yeah. So it makes sense to put it there. Right. Yeah. And like, like chainsaws weren't scary until Texas Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know? Like you never thought, oh, I've got to be scared of that. It was just a tool. I was like, oh. I don't know. I've never seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I'm scared of saws. Like, right, but because, like, now they're at haunted houses, and now it's, like, uh, a thing, you, so, you know, like, it, it's an yes, yes. association. Same with, like, um, Freddy's, like, finger knives. You know, like, yes, knives are scary yes. in themselves, but now that's, like, an iconic horror image. Yes, I would agree with you. Yes. In 1984, sadly, there was a a tragedy in which eight teenagers were trapped inside a haunted house in New Jersey, which caught fire, and they 
all of them passed away. Mm-hmm. After this, many attractions were shut down and politicians began uh, enacting really strong safety regulations to make haunted houses more of a, you know, <laughs> safe place to be. Right. But also around this time, um, more and more professional haunted house businesses began popping up and they were just spreading and monopolizing off of the you know big money making opportunity there was in haunted houses um the thing about this is that professional haunted house companies were much more high budget than the non-profit locally made ones Mm -hmm. so they sort of began dominating those and pushing them out and Mm. those took a big hit um Mm. like that one i said before the junior chambers one um that one used to be really big and it is no longer anymore mostly Mm. because those ones were run off of like volunteer basis and were funded by donation and Uh um they didn't hold on to any of the profits for like the haunted house of the next year where these ones had actual profits that they could put in really cool effects into their um into their houses and they right they just had much more money to work with and they could hire people as i just said they were able to push out the nonprofit groups who ran on volunteer basis and couldn't afford as high quality effects as of 2016 there were an estimated 2700 operational professional haunted houses that makes that sense crazy? that checks out i guess yeah i mean there's like okay if you think like 50 states and like how many maybe each county has at least one yeah, I think that checks out. Oh so, yeah, that yeah. The thing about how out. many farms, like <laughs> as an additional recreation, like as an additional way to bring in income, just like pop a corn maze in there, you know. Mm. I I think the thing about that is that that surprised me is that it was a professional one. So to me, like that didn't read as like like the town in Connecticut that I lived at for during junior high. Like there was a corn maze, but that was really just like there was a corn farm that like boom, we made it a maze. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if that counts as a professional one. I feel like if it's, like, an established, like, farm that you go to and they have, like, a like during the regular year, you can go there and do a wine tasting and then they have a haunted yeah. house. Like, I think that still counts, you know, as okay. long as they're, if they're turning it into, like, an LLC, you know, they're claiming mm. it as a, they're claiming it as a business. Let's get into the tax specificities. Yeah. <laughs> it's all, it all comes down to taxes at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. The larger haunted houses in America can reportedly earn $3 million in profit during the Halloween season, and the industry is said to be worth $300 million, according to an NBC report. Which, I guess, like, to me, that seems crazy, but I don't know what I'm thinking of, like, you know, a national industry. I guess that's... You know, what we're not talking about with... enough is the national industry of Spirit Halloween. How do they have all this money that oh there are God. so many of them? <laughs> there are so many, Jane. I see them everywhere. Anytime a business goes under Spirit Halloween, like, it's unbelievable. How much money do they have? Sorry. So funny. They're like the, the mattress store of... They are, though. Oh, okay, they are. They are. <laughs> Maybe it's a front. Maybe it's... um. What's that called? Like, Money wandering. Like the Mexican scene. cartel owns Spirit Halloween. <laughs> if you told me that, I wouldn't be shocked. I just wouldn't. I just wouldn't. <laughs> God, so such so mysterious to me. Okay, and then my last thing I have to say is that these days, haunted houses are no longer just about creepy characters and hyper-realistic horror. Instead, the industry has flocked to all sorts of new extreme frights from zombie runs, escape games, and experiences seemingly designed Mm. to traumatize, which brings me back Uh. to the thing that I said I didn't like about haunted houses last week, is that they're places designed to bully you. I've it's never true. had a pleasant experience at a haunted house. It's Same. either I've been very, either I've gone to, like, a local one that, like, my neighbor put together that was very underwhelming and, like, okay, what are you <laughs> The good or old 1937 was, style. Yeah. Or it was terrifying and I right. felt, like, angered that these people who i didn't know were doing mean things to me and, and then you're like mad at the people who brought you because it's like yes. i trusted you yeah <laughs> yes the worst experience i ever had was when i went to the haunt at dorney park which mm-hmm. i'm not saying that that isn't a like a high quality haunted experience like, yeah it was very well put together it's very well run very well organized but 
basically, I, I don't know, if, <laughs> these employees are like trained to listen to your conversations and learn your names. Right. And, right. So they spent a, one area of the park I was in, this one guy like heard me say my friend's name and then chased her down for like a half hour jesus like julie i'm coming for you and oh my god it was so scary that's really scary at one point like we were walking around and she said to me in front of somebody who was literally approaching us like if you don't acknowledge them if you don't look like you're scared of them then they won't follow you around and he heard her say that and i think like zeroed in on what i was trying to do and literally just like hovered by me for like the next 15 minutes and i was so uncomfortable and so scared and it was like no matter Aww. what strategy i could think of to shake him i couldn't get him to leave me alone oh like in retrospect that was his job but in the right. moment i was so mad at him <laughs> No, there are like there are like Halloween things that I think are fun, and like a light scare isn't a bad thing. Like one time mm. we did a haunted corn like a hayride, and so like mm. there were clearly defined rules. Like we sat on the tractor, and yes, there were people yes, yes. outside the tractor, and that was like interesting enough. Or like I'm not a roller coaster person, but I do enjoy like a semi amount of thrill in a ride. Like I like the Jurassic Park ride. It um that's a that's like a big log flume, and mm. um. Universal Studios or like Universal Studios has these cool rides where it's a track that's on the ground the mm. entire time, but like a 3D a screen moves around. So it feels like you're moving, but actually you're in one place. Like that's fine. But mm-hmm. the chaos that comes from haunted houses, I don't enjoy. Because mm-hmm. they just have free reign. It's like, okay, yeah, you can do whatever you want. I mean, they can't touch you, but beyond that. Mm, there was, are some that they can. If there you are some that they can. The like you can go, you can go to crazy ones where they're allowed to yeah. do insane shit, which I would never do. I was in a haunted house once. Ooh, my high school, my high school, the um, the Invisible Children Club, which I was involved in, and at one point I, I was too. Of, I was too. I at one point was the president. Um, they would host oh, a haunted house every year in the high school. It was really mm-hmm. cool, and all the money would go to Invisible Children, um, and different clubs would be in charge of different rooms. So the year I was in it, the the Invisible Children Club, which is not what it was called. It was called Generation 4 Change, and we did stuff beyond Invisible Children, but that's, like, the identifying factor. Um, mm. We we were the vampires, and we were on the stage, and it was really cool. I got to be a, I got to be a vampire victim. Mm. It was fun. Yeah, I agree. The ones where they don't bother you <laughs> or they don't go near you or like you walk on a path and things happen around you like that. That's the okay. I can handle that. I think I would really enjoy the Disney Haunted Mansion one because it's like walking around seeing. Oh, Disney cool Haunted facts. Mansion is fun. Disney yeah. Haunted Mansion is a great time. Yeah, it's like it's a ride. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we get to my topic for the middle segment, I've decided to talk about something that we all kind of forget is happening, but it is, which is the coin shortage. <laughs> and and I want to talk about how a coin shortage happens. So. I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Okay. So, how did the coin shortage happen? There are two reasons it happened. First, the U.S. Mint significantly reduced its production of coins after implementing safety measures to protect its employees from the coronavirus. This was one point. The other point is that consumers are using coins less often because less people are getting paid. I wouldn't even think about that. I thought you were just going to say like, oh, because we pay more electronically, but right. No, people are using coins less because think about how many people get paid under the table or they get paid cash. Like I would get paid cash when I babysat, you know? Yeah. Those small cash transactions um, that add up for people to make a living Um, and those jobs don't really exist. Or, like, people in the food service industry who get tips in cash. Also, because people have been afraid of exchanging cash because of coronavirus and the spread of disease, people have switched to using credit cards and mobile payments to avoid handling money, which is super true. My mom would say, like, don't use cash. Like, only use your card when I would go out to buy stuff. Coronavirus also caused businesses to shut down that would normally help coins keep moving. It's amazing how quickly a coin can move from establishment to establishment um oh someone once told me that like there's a one like every bill you have ever touched like has at one point been in a stripper's like butt oh my god <laughs> i did not like that fact and i think they made it up but like 
it, thematically it works. Like technically, like, you know, you don't know where your money's been. Right. <laughs> thematically. <laughs> thematically on point. <laughs> That's wild. That's truly wild. I didn't even think about that. Um, so Michael White, who is a spokesman, a spokes, a spokesman, a spokesman <laughs> for the USA. He's a whistleblower. He's that guy that makes those like vape clouds that people are like supposed to be impressed by. Oh mind. my God. Like, wow. <laughs> Poor Michael White. I'm just dragging him and I don't even know him. Um, he said with establishments like retail shops, bank branches, transit authorities, and laundromats closed, which are the biggest users of cash the typical places where coin enters our society have slowed or even stopped the normal circulation of coin on june 15th the federal reserve announced that it would start capping the amount of coins that allots to banks and financial institutions um it was expected to be temporary but i believe it's still in place mm. the federal reserve and the u.s mint are working to fix the problem but it is unclear when the problem will end i was in dunkin donuts today they still had a sign that said there is a coin shortage we cannot take cash um on june 30th the federal reserve announced that a task force would create a plan to deal with the problem the task force com was comprised of leaders from big banks associations the federal reserve and the department of the treasury and then its first meeting on july 10th um and then shared a list of recommendations in early august or it was expected to. I actually don't know if it did. This article is from August. They were answering questions <gasps> Sarah, like, what? I'm sorry. I don't know why. I totally forgot to make a big deal out of this in my segment, but I just really, Haunted Mansion opened in, guess the year. 1969. Yeah, I said that, but I don't, I didn't pause to be like, why does this year haunt us? Anyway, continue. Oh, you're right. It does haunt us. I'm just going to guess 1969 about everything for the yeah. rest of my life. <laughs> It happened in 1969. What yeah. year was Barack Obama elected? 1969. <laughs> no. um, the group answered questions like, did the pandemic throw a curveball and do we need to rethink the way coins are stored or delivered? Is Are there a way to streamline the supply chain to get coins out now? And can we alter the supply chain? Mm -hmm. um, the U.S. Mint returned to full production in mid-June amidst the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and it is expected to produce 19.8 billion coins by the end of the year. In the meantime, uh, Whaley, who is the some important person, he's the head of the ICBA. I don't know what that stands for. The International Coin Bureau of Association. <laughs> I don't know. He's the head of it. He said consumers should consider depositing their coins at a bank or spending them at a local business to get coins back in circulation. So this is a great time to go to the, your coin store, your local grocery store. If they've mm -hmm. got coin in a rainy day fund, I can't think of a better rainy day than we are in right now. He said. <laughs> so that's how the coin shortage was created. I also wanted to bring up the Federal Reserve because they're going to come up in my my topic um so i just oh. wanted to i just wanted to talk about them oh. but um that's why there is a coin shortage because i keep seeing tweets that are like what do you mean we're running out of money print more like, that's not <laughs> how it works that's just because that's that causes inflation although we should stop with the pennies though right isn't that a thing like, oh my pennies? god there is a movement to stop using pennies and there are countries who do not use pennies anymore hungary does not have a penny their lowest coin is five and it's amazing yeah, we should definitely. I, I agree that we should. We can. No it is, more penny. It is possible to get rid of the penny. So now let's talk about the real shit. Okay. Today we're going to talk about the real guys and the fake guys. I don't remember what I asked you about, <laughs> so none of this makes sense so far. Keep going. <laughs> the myth and the legend and also the true historical people who were in the Illuminati. <gasps> oh, Yeah. <laughs> So get ready, okay? Because I'm, I'm ready not spaghetti. here to talk about lore. I'm here to talk about the real, real people. Okay. So the real Illuminati refers to the Bavarian Illuminati, which we talked about last week, you know, with the beer. They were founded oh, on yeah. May 1st. Yep, they were founded on May 1st, 1776. So, like, I know 1776 was a big year for America, but, like, Germany got the <laughs> Illuminati that year, so... <laughs> Awkward! And they were founded by a man named Adam Weishaupt. As a society, their goals were to oppose superstition, obscurantism, religious influence over public life, and abuses of state power. 
Essentially, they were really against religious governing and posed a huge threat to the Catholic Church. Ooh. Weishaupt, Weishaupt, I don't know, was a professor of canon law at the University of Ingolstadt and was the only non-clerical professor at the university. So he was the only one who wasn't a clergy member. That same year, Pope Clement XIV, who I've heard was a nasty guy, um, <laughs> just not a nice one, um, has dissolved, um, had dissolved the Order of the Jesuits, who were a faction of Protestants, um, and the Jesuits had run this university. So even though they weren't legally allowed to convene and practice their religion, they still ran a university under sort of Jesuit beliefs and those frustrated jesuits made many attempts to discredit the non-clerical staff and ban any liberal teachings because they were frustrated um with the pope trying to dissolve their religion weishaupt was very frustrated by this and became deeply anti-religious spreading the ideas of the enlightenment in his teaching instead Weishaupt actually tried to join the Freemasons at this time um, in 1773-ish, but he could not afford the dues. So he founded his own society with ranks like the Freemasons, but that had, uh, but that had an agenda closer to his own. Interesting. Yes. It's like mm-hmm. <laughs> people wanting to rush. Elitism. Yeah. People, yeah. To, people wanting to rush sororities. They can't afford the dues, <laughs> but we make those accessible. <laughs> Freemasons aren't like that. That's why sororities are better. (laughs) The Illuminati was originally called the Covenant of Perfectibility or Perfectibilists. But he changed it because it was too hard to say. (laughs) You know, it was strange. Because an Illuminati is a normal word, you know? Well, it means the... the okay, okay, so I thought maybe you knew this, but I guess you don't. Um, Illuminati <gasps> comes from the term, like, illumination or to be enlightened. Okay. That was such a shady way to say that, Sarah. No, I'm sorry. I really thought that you knew <laughs> I that. I thought you would know this, but... No, I, I thought... Not. I thought you... I genuinely thought you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I mean, I can gather from hearing the word that it has to do with illumination. Right, right. So it means, mm-hmm. like, en- enlightenment. That's uh-huh, what uh-huh. Um, And perfectibility was too strange and too difficult to say, so okay. he changed it. Weishaupt formed this group with four of his students and made the Owl of Minerva their symbol. Very pagan. Ooh. Except they were also anti-pagan. So he was just like, nope, she's just a, she's just a god lady that I like. So there's that. What? I know. <laughs> Every member used aliases within the society, and they definitely did have like a pension for the Greek enlightened people, like the Greek philosophers, because their mm-hmm. names were, and just Greek lore in general, because their names were Spartacus, was Weishaupt's alias, and the law students were Ajax, Agathon, Tiberius, and Erasmus. So, like, clearly mm-hmm. they had this sort of idea about ancient culture and like following the ancients' trains of thought. Yeah. Because they were, like, the kings of philosophy. Mm-hmm. In April of 1778, almost two years after founding this covenant, they became the Order of the Illuminati. And by this time, they were a group of 12. By the end of that summer, however, the Order had 27 members under five commands. So there was five different groups with different leaders. And the Order had three grades to it, which are, like, ranks. Novice, Minerval, and Illuminated Minerval. As they moved mm-hmm. through the grades, the candidate was given secret signs and passwords. Christians of good character were actively sought, with Jews and pagans specifically excluded, along with women, monks, and members of other secret societies. Uh. The favored can- candidates were rich, docile, willing to learn, and aged 18 to 30. Now, they picked Christians because, like, they wanted people who were, like, good-natured, but they also wanted people who they could easily, like, kind of trick um, <laughs> into thinking that religion was bad. In February of 1777, 
so many sevens. Vysop did manage to join the Freemasons because he hoped to acquire materials to expand his own rituals. He literally wanted to copy them. Um, <laughs> so he went in as a spy. And he proceeded through Blue Lodge Masonry, which is the first, like, level of Freemasonry. Um, but he wasn't getting the information that he wanted from them. So he decided to encourage his followers to enter into Freemasonry and proceed through the first three degrees as a secondary project of the Illuminati. They managed to obtain, and he did this essentially because he wanted them to go in there, recruit from inside the Freemasons, see what information they could get, and then come back and report it to him so that they could copy their rituals and then adapt it into what he believed. Mm -hmm. They managed to obtain a warrant to establish a Freemason lodge in Munich. They were like tricking the Freemasons. Um, and Weishaupt packed this new lodge with Illuminati members. So they decided that they wanted to become independent from their Grand Lodge so that they could become a mother lodge. So it was like big chapter. They wanted to be a little chapter that didn't have to report back to the Grand Lodge anymore so that Weishaupt could literally like take the Freemasons and turn them secretly into Illuminatis and get all of the access of the Freemasons while promoting his own agenda, which is pretty smart. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and this happened relatively quickly. They did this by 1782, and it happened easily with the alliance of Ald Adolf Freiherr Niga. Niga was recruited late in 1780 at a convention of the Rite of Strict Observance, which was a Freemason convention, by Constanzo Marchese di Constanzo. Wait, his name is Mar Constanzo? Yeah, Constanzo is a name. It's a first name. And his last name is also Di Costanzo. <laughs> that can't be right, but I copied and pasted that. That's like when your family names you John Johnson or like. <laughs> I think it's like literally that. But he was an infantry captain in the Bavarian army, and he also was a fellow Freemason and an alum and an Illuminati. Niga wanted to create a reform society and was delighted to hear that one already existed that was supposedly also a Freemason chapter. And so Costanzo gave him some reading materials related to the Minerval grade of the Illuminati and Niga became interested. So Weishaupt sent him a letter in November of 1780. And at this time he did not, Niga did not live in Munich. He lived closer to Berlin. Mm -hmm. Weishaupt managed to acknowledge um, Niga's like interest in alchemy and the higher sciences and he pledged to support them and his research in this if Niga chose to join the Illuminati and this could only happen, he could only join if he also recruited before being admitted to a higher grade to go past the Minerval grade and this is where the Illuminati become a lot like that Nexium cult that the <laughs> HBO just made a documentary about the Val like there are shocking similarities between how they get people to join and then they say you have to recruit before you get more information like they did literally mm -hmm. this exact same tactic which is super fascinating so Niga started recruiting and many other Masons found Niga's description of this new Masonic order attractive and they were enrolled in the Minerva grade of the Illuminati because again, they were like, oh, it's just an appendage to the Freemasons. Mm -hmm. They didn't really see it as like an alternative, even mm -hmm. though that's what Weishaupt wanted it to be. Weishaupt convinced Niga that he served, that he, Weishaupt, served what he called the most serene superiors, but he wouldn't really tell him anything more. So without any additional information about the Illuminati and where their power came from and why they were so attractive, Niga kind of like started to fumble in his recruiting because people would ask him questions and he wouldn't be able to answer. <laughs> um, and he became very embarrassed about his lack of knowledge about the Illuminati beyond the Minerval grade, especially because he was supposed to be like selling it essentially. Yeah. So Niga began to lose recruits, and Weishaupt was forced to confess to Niga in 1781, one year later, that his superiors in the antiquity of the order were fictitious. He'd been telling him it's an ancient <gasps> order, um, and that higher degrees had yet to be written. Niga took this surprisingly well. <laughs> um, he, instead of being angry, he welcomed the opportunity to use the order as a vehicle for his own ideas. He was like, you haven't written the higher grades? Great. I'm going to write them. 
Yeah, he was like, I'm going to take this and run with it. Exactly. And Weishaupt promised Niga a free hand in the creation of the higher degrees and also promised to send him his own notes on what those ideas should be. So mm-hmm. Niga then promised to make the Illuminati more attractive to respective members. So he knew how to sell it again because essentially he was selling them his own ideas. Mm-hmm. By this point, there were also internal problems within the Illuminati. The Eichstad, com- um, w- which was a, uh, what was it? It was a command. It was a branch. Like, there were different order. Like, it was all mm. the Illuminati, but there were different chapters, right? The Eichstad was one of the, the chapters. Um, and they formed their own autonomous province of the Illuminati in July of 1780, which drove a rift between Weishaupt and the, like, le- the other leaders of the Illuminati who were just below him were called the Area Pegasus. Okay. And it kind of drove a rift between them. So it was like, Weishaupt was at the top, and then there was a council who had a leader from all of the different chapters. And the fact that the Eichstatt chapter left created a rift. Ooh. Yes, there's problems in paradise. Like when Zane left One Direction. And just like that. <laughs> okay, just like that. And James Corden was like, what do I do? James Corden was Weishaupt. <laughs> <laughs> Niga said that the problem was that Weishaupt wanted to recruit young university students with little experience, which was giving the Illuminati leadership problems because these young people didn't know what they were doing. They were like, they were like 18 and they were like, great, I'm in charge, but they had no actual ideas and they didn't have any leadership experience and it was a big problem. Um, so he encouraged Weishaupt to recruit older Freemasons, but in order for that to happen, Weishaupt would have to relax his anti-Jesuit ideas, which he didn't really want to do. Mm. because of everything that happened at the at the college essentially the power of the illuminati was handed over to niga to mend the situation the aeropagus were like you should take care of this because he had a better head on his shoulders and he had more ideas uh, they decided to they planned to obtain their own constitution from london for their independent Freemason Lodge um, and to become a mother lodge. Um, and that plan had originally stalled under Weishaupt, but Nigo wrote new grades for the order in 1782 while he waited for this to happen. And these new grades were arranged into three classes. The first was class one, which included the novitiate, the, the novitiate, mm-hmm. the Minerval, and the Illuminatus Minor, which had been what had been existed before. Class two, which was the same as the Masonic grades, and class three, which were the mysteries. And the mysteries included the priest, the prime, the mage, and the king. It is very unlikely that the rituals for the mage and the king were ever written. (gasps) Yeah. In 1782, Lodge Theodore, which is the lodge that existed in Munich, claimed independence from Royal York, which was their, like, which was the big Freemason Lodge that existed in London. Um, and they said this was because they were distrustful of the Royal York to make decisions for them because they were so far away. So they were, like, citing the American reason for going to war. They were like, yep, mm-hmm. us too. <laughs> we're super far away. You can't rule us. So therefore, they became their own independent lodge. And from there, the Illuminati decided that they were going to infiltrate the Grand Lodge of the Freemasons of Germany. But this was a failed attempt, and Lodge Theodore, being so young and so independent, also inevitably failed without the help of the head Freemasons. The Illuminati's hopes of recruiting Freemasons were essentially crushed. However, they were still able to recruit at the individual level, and Illuminati circles did still expand. Um, they They recruited dukes and counts and had a lot of notable German politicians amongst their ranks. Mm-hmm. Weishaupt desperately wanted to keep the Illuminati a secret um, from a group known as the <laughs> Rosicrucians, who were an order of Protestant pro-monarchs, so essentially the antithesis of the Illuminati. However, <laughs> the existence of the Illuminati became undeniable, and Niga, who was too enthusiastic about the Illuminati's like power and ideas to be subtle, accidentally <laughs> recruited some Rosicrucians. <laughs> like a fool. And so the Rosicrucians began a sustained attack on the Illuminati under Johann Christoph von Wollner. He accused the Illuminati of atheism and revolutionary tendencies. (laughs) I think that's fair. And in April of 1783, Frederick the Great, who was the king of Prussia, much like them all, informed Charles of Hesse... (laughs) 
who was a Freemason, um, that the Berlin Lodges had documents belonging to the Minervals or Illuminati, which contained appalling material, and asked if he had heard them. So essentially they found out there were Illuminati in the Freemasons of Berlin. Mm Because the Illuminati had infiltrated the Freemasons. Um, And this turned the Berlin Masons against the Order of the Illuminati. In Austria, the Illuminati were blamed for producing anti-religious pamphlets. It's actually never been proven that the Illuminati did it. There was just suddenly a string of, like, propaganda going around against the church, and they blamed the Illuminati, but we don't know for sure that they did it. The Bavarian Illuminati, whose existence was already known to the Rosicrucians, because an informant, this is actually a hilarious story. So there was an informant um, uh, who had uh, sought out a known, a, a known or suspected Illuminati member named Ferdinand Maria Bader. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he told him, oh, you should join. And he was an Aeropagite. So he was like towards the top of the Illuminati. And he was recruited to join the Rosicrucians. Um, and he became their informant. And after his admission to the Rosicrucians, so Weishaupt had planted Bader in the Rosicrucians being like, you'll spy on us for the Illuminati. But the Rosicrucians, after recruiting him, were like, are you an Illuminati? Um, and they, because they were like, you can't be in both. You can't be a Rosicrucian and an Illuminati. And like an idiot, uh-huh. he was like, great, then I'll resign from the Rosicrucians. <laughs> confirming <laughs> that he was a member of the Illuminati. <laughs> um, and essentially in his resignation letter, he was like, the Illuminati are better, bro. And like, <laughs> like the Illuminati did it first and was like talking up the Illuminati. And he specifically identified Lodge Theodore as an Illuminati Lodge. They're like, great, we know where you are. So Weishaupt, Niga, and the Areopagites all were like cornered and they were like, great, the Rosicrucians are here. They know that we're here. So it was no longer a secret. And because these leaders did not agree, Vaisop would privately slander his enemies uh, to his perceived friends, um, and he alienated Niga. Niga elevated the order from a tiny anti-clerical club to a large organization and felt that his work was under-acknowledged, so then he started also bragging about the power of the Illuminati. (laughs) Vaisop also continued... um, to speak against the cler- the clergy and he clashed with Niga's mysticism and the recruitment of the mystically inclined Freemasons. Matters ca- eventually came to a head over the grade of priests, which I mentioned earlier, which was a class three grade. Niga pointed out that, oh, so the consensus among many of the Illuminati was that the ritual was florid and ill-conceived, and Niga didn't take that criticism well. Um, and they said that the regalia to complete the ritual was too expensive. So some refused to use it and others edited the ritual as necessary. Mm-hmm. And Weishaupt demanded that Niga rewrite the ritual hearing these concerns. So Niga pointed out that it was already circulated with Weishaupt's original blessing. He was like, oh, the only reason it's being done is because you said it was okay. Um, <laughs> And he was like, also, you're supposed to be, like, the ancient one. And, like, you're supposed to appreciate ancient <laughs> culture. And this is, like, an ancient ritual. And <laughs> Weishaupt was like, I really don't care. So Weishaupt claimed to the other Illuminati that the priest's ritual was flawed because Niga had invented it. So they were complaining to him about him. He was like, I don't know. I didn't do it. It was Niga's idea. So then <laughs> the other people started, were like, well, Niga's a bad Illuminati member. So then... Niga got offended, and he threatened to tell the world how much of the Illuminati ritual he had made up, which was an issue, because the lower-level Illuminati still thought that it was an ancient order. Oh, no. Yeah. So Niga attempted to threaten the Areopagites, but this was, uh, this failed. Um, And because of this, because he was like, well, I'm going to threaten you, and they were like, you're not going to do this. There's no way you would do this. And they were right. They didn't trust him anymore. Like, well, he's a loose cannon. (laughs) So in July 1784, Niga left the order by a mutual agreement under which he returned all relevant papers and Weishaupt published a retraction of all slanders against him. Um, and because Niga was forced out, Weishaupt deprived the order of its best theoretician and recruiter and therefore suffered immensely, which is why those, those other rituals were never written. Because he fired the guy that was writing them. What? 
so the Illuminati was essentially brought down by their failure at discretion. In spite <laughs> of the efforts by their superiors to curb loose talk, politically dangerous boasts of power and criticism of the monarchy caused secret orders existence to become common knowledge along with the names of many important members the presence of illuminati in positions of power led to public disquiet because there were illuminati in many civic and state governing bodies so they were like um our government's literally being run by a secret order like we should <laughs> we should stop that and their known opposition to jesuits resulted in the banned order in the in the band order losing key academic and church positions so because they were known to be anti-jesuit and because the illuminati members were known they were being denied jobs in ingolstadt the jesuit heads of the department were replaced by the oh sorry i said that the other way around so the jesuits were the band order so their opposition to the jesuits and their amount of power caused jesuits to lose jobs like, that's how much power they had. Because the people who were in charge of giving those jobs either were Illuminati sympathizers or were in in the Illuminati. So, in Ingolstadt, for example, the Jesuits' heads of departments were all replaced by Illuminati leaders. But because of this slow takeover by the Illuminati, Charles Theodore, who was the Duke of Bavaria, for whom Lodge Theodore had been named, they he decided to ban all secret societies, including the Illuminati, on the 2nd of March, 1785. Oof. So, but see, someone telling me I'm not allowed to have a secret society really makes me want to have a secret, a secret society. society. <laughs> I don't know if that law is still in place. I wonder. <laughs> From there, there are rumors that the Illuminati made their way to France, but these rumors have never been substantiated. I have a book called The Secret History of the World, and the writer like asserts that the illuminati were involved in the french revolution they brought robespierre to power and led the reign of terror and then oh, gave, yeah and then gave napoleon his power like they are like you cannot tell me that didn't happen and they vehemently believe that and that's essentially where the illuminati died they were banned and but they had already been falling apart so they kind of just disappeared <laughs> so what does the term illuminati mean now Illuminati has become synonymous with what conspiracy theorists call the New World Order. Mm-hmm. I remember talking about them with the Denver airport. Yep. And the New World Order is a totalitarian one-world government. And conspiracy theorists think that the Illuminati never disappeared. Instead, they went into hiding to recruit leaders into the New World Order, which would make sense because they did primarily recruit dukes and counts. Mm-hmm. The New World Order, under the New World Order, 1% of the population would put the other 99% into work camps and control them. Which, I watched the BuzzFeed Unsolved episode where they talk about this, and Shane was like, doesn't that really mean that the other 1% is in the camp? Like, <laughs> it's yeah. all a matter of perspective of, like, who's inside, who's outside <laughs> at that point. <laughs> um, but I'm sure they have more dangerous and destructive ways of thinking about it than that. So, uh, there are a lot of reasons people think this, um, and there are a lot of, like, subtle hints that people use to say that the Illuminati exists. Mm -hmm. In, at some point when he was president, George H.W. Bush said in an address to the nation that he would help create a new world order, and people were like, that was a message to the Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> and he says it twice, like, people were like, he's, he's an Illuminati. <laughs> This conspiracy is mostly propelled by white right-wing Christians who fear a like a godless government. They're mm -hmm. like, we've lost our true intention, yada yada. So they're afraid of the Illuminati because the Illuminati was founded as an anti-religious organization. Some separation of church and state. Right. But some people believe the New World Order will be under the domination of Lucifer, which is why <laughs> the Illuminati encouraged the French Revolution because of the carnage it would cause to serve Lucifer. Mm -hmm. Some think the Illuminati is run by lizard people who walk around and infiltrate <laughs> the government. Examples would be the Clintons and the Obamas, which if anyone is uh. a person, it is Mike Pence. He looks like a lizard person. <laughs> Similarly, bye. It would explain his eye. Donald Marshall. Not, not, the, not his eye, the fly. Oh, the fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Similarly, Donald Marshall believes the Illuminati is killing celebrities and replacing them with clones. Mm -hmm. These clones include Beyonce, Al mm -hmm. Roker, and Eminem. 
there's a video of Eminem getting ready to perform at a University of Michigan football game, and the announcers are talking to him, and he just looks out of it. Like, he's just yeah. walking around aimlessly. His mouth is open. He looks completely lost. And somebody, this is his clone glitching. Mm-hmm. Another video of Al Roker shows him talking with one of his co-hosts, and his co-host says, holy ghost, and he turns and looks at the camera with, like, this weird expression, like, she yeah. described it, is that, like, he looks like he just pooped himself, like, <laughs> but he just keeps doing it, and he doesn't stop, almost like he was reset. Well, I, the thing about Al Roker, like, to Shane's point, is that, I mean, with the medical things he had going on, like, he could have pooped himself. He could have pooped himself. I, I don't want to wake him up, but he has said in an interview that it happened at the White House one time. So I would rather accuse him of pooping himself than accuse him of being an Illuminati. I think that's fair. <laughs> Regardless if the clone theory is true, more conspir- conspiracy theorists agree that there are many celebrities in the Illuminati because of their clothing choices that include triangles and pyramids. And... <laughs> Triangles and pyramids have become a symbol of the Illuminati because it is rumored that the Illuminati infiltrated none other than the Federal Reserve. Mm. And so they think that the Illuminati control our money and that they put the triangles on there for subliminal messaging. And maybe why the Illuminati is why there's a coin shortage. Oh. Oh. Maybe. Oh. Mostly conspiracy theories regarding the Illuminati are based in racism. Um, the first big conspiracy theory about the Illuminati popped up after a fake script of a meeting of Zionists was quote unquote leaked and was used as an anti-Semitic propaganda because in this script, the Jewish people talking were plotting world domination, but it was a mm. fake script. They used it to be like, look, we have to fear this. Yeah. And they said that they were the Illuminati. After World War II, conservatives in the U.S. also used the Illuminati to fuel anti-communist witch hunts. To be like, the Illuminati are planting the communists. They want to take over our government, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. There is a very, very, very slim chance of the Illuminati being real. Like, most historians agree there's no way they survived. They really were falling apart. Um, They likely never made it out of Germany. Um, Mm -hmm. But, like, 28% of people believe in the Illuminati. I wonder if there are, like, groups of friends that are just, like, let's restart the Illuminati, but it's just, like, them hanging out. <laughs> That's pretty and they don't niche, really do anything. They'd be, like, annoying academic friends. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? That would be really funny. If you can be, I'm in the Illuminati, and you're like, <gasps> and then you find out it's just, like... <laughs> some guy hanging out with his friend Kevin in a basement and they eat pizza every other Thursday. <laughs> I'm not saying it's impossible because it's certainly not. Now, you know, I really wanted to talk about this because I just rewatched um, Angels and Demons, The Da Vinci Code and Inferno and I just finished uh, Dan Brown's newest book even though it came out three years ago. I'm behind. Um, <laughs> and I, The Angels and Demons is my favorite of his books and it's about the Illuminati. Mm-hmm. Or the Illuminati are like the antagonists in it um because every book features a secret society um (laughs) it's very good it's very good so that was fun it's a fun fun little dive for me all right thank you so much for listening you can find us on instagram twitter and facebook at ykwibw podcast you can check out our website i've been wondering.com if you like what you're hearing you can consider donating to us on the link in the show notes and finally if you have something that you've been wondering you can email us at i've been wondering podcast at gmail.com and we'd love to put it on our show jane you know what i've been wondering what have you been wondering sarah so I know that Vlad the Impaler inspired <gasps> Dracula, but I don't know anything about him. I want, you, I, want you, I want you to tell me about him. I don't know why I'm so excited about that. Ooh, okay. I'm into gothic horror right now. So Okay, tell, okay. Tell me more. Well, okay. This is gothic it. horror, not what's the other one? <laughs> Ostrogoth. <laughs> Ostrogoths. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sarah. Yes. Do you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering? What is the most compelling evidence we have that ghosts exist? 
<gasps> Sarah just turned on her screen camera at the perfect moment. Like, I just, I'm like, I, this is gonna, might be really spooky. It's gonna be a spooky episode, but I don't know. I just want to hear like things that have happened that are like, um, so good. Um, yeah, it's like you can't argue with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Of course. Oh, uh, I'm excited. Oh, boy. Okay. I'm not saying it. I do believe in ghosts, although sometimes I do, but just like, yeah, I don't know. Make me believe. You don't much. even know this. I have ghosts on my fingernails right now, Jane. It was perfect. <gasps> it was meant to be. Oh, so spooky. Spooky and fun. I mean, oh. I mean, Sarah knows this, but the world doesn't. My current favorite show is Julie and the Phantoms, which is about ghosts. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that wasn't why I asked this the question. Family but friendly it's not movie unrelated. About, it's family friendly about ghosts. It's not spooky about ghosts. I'm about to go watch Haunting of Bly Manor, movie, which is actually about like scary ghosts. <gasps> I watched it yesterday, Sarah. I couldn't stop. I you watched the whole day. thing? That's crazy. No, I'm super excited to watch it. It was such a poor choice of my life because I had so many other things I needed to do, but I couldn't stop. Um, no, I'm going to go binge it. I have a couple of things. I have I really need to finish The Umbrella Academy, but I will, I'm going to watch mm. Blind Manor because I'm so excited. I just binged um, Monsterland on Hulu. It was very good. Hmm. Okay, well, that's what's coming at you next week. Thank you so much for listening. This is You Know What I've Been Wondering.